Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Innovators Podcast. We are on episode three. So for episode three, we got a chance to sit down and talk to Clayton Mooney, who is a local entrepreneur. I wanted to give you just a little bit of background on Clayton before we jump into the conversation. So Clayton, uh, actually before finding his career in starting food technology companies, uh, he actually played professional poker, uh, competed in tournaments and games all over the world, had some awesome stories about that. And then in 2014, Clayton actually moved from Ireland back here to Iowa and co-founded his first company called Kinesol. So Kinesol manufactures solar food dehydrators for farmers in developing countries. And then more recently, Clayton co-founded Nebulum, so Nebulum is a indoor farming company here in the research park. We had a great conversation about Nebulum, uh, kind of where they've been, how they've pivoted, uh, where they might be soon in the future. And it was just a really fun conversation. Talked about uh, his business, also talked about some of his hobbies, including uh, being a boxing coach and uh, ultra marathon running. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Clayton, how are you doing today? Doing well, Matt. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule. We appreciate it a lot. I'm excited to hear about your story today, uh, a little bit about your company, Nebulum, and uh, uh, just a little bit about you. So if you don't mind starting us off, just kind of tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Uh, what has the path been thus far? So I grew up on a small family farm in southeast Iowa called Blakesburg. And in 2008, I moved to Iowa State as a junior in business economics with a plan to go off to law school and become a patent attorney. I lasted two semesters before I dropped out to pursue a different career. And that career was online poker. Uh, so I played and coached online poker full time for a few years. And then in 2011, the government said online poker wasn't regulated, so they took it down. And I decided to do the adult thing and return to school. Uh, during, the, during the years playing poker, I blogged a lot and talked about the strategy behind the game. And I realized I was a very bad writer and I wanted to become a better writer. So when I returned to Iowa State, I switched from business economics to English with a focus on creative writing. Crammed a bunch of credits into three semesters and then jumped into corporate America and took a job out in Denver, Colorado after graduating. Lasted about a year in cubicle city before I realized I make a pretty bad employee and I went back to playing poker but of course I had to leave the United States to do so so I ended up in Dublin Ireland for a year very cool I uh, I can't say that I'm a poker pro by any means but I have dabbled uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious what is the what is the difference between playing it online uh, versus playing it you know at a casino I mean I'm, I imagine there's uh, quite a big change in the uh, strategy. What's, what's that like? Go into that a little bit. Yeah, good question. So I see poker as a mathematical science. And if you're playing online, it's more of a video game. Sure. And you can play up to 40 tables of online poker at once. So you're able to play a little over 3,000 hands of poker an hour. So millions of hands each year. Wow. So compared to a casino where you're hopefully getting 30 to 40 hands an hour, it improves your sample size. Uh, you can understand a lot more about the game a lot quicker. Uh, and then it's a steeper learning curve playing online poker as well. So 90% uh, of my time was online, but I did go to Las Vegas every year for World Series of Poker. Awesome. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about um, your decision to go away from, as you said, the cubicle 
cubicle city. Is that what the word cubicle you use? City. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. What, what wasn't working and, and why, why did you make the decision that you did? So I was really excited to move to Denver. I love Denver, love Colorado. And I imagined most of my days and my free time, I'd be out in the mountains, hiking the trails, enjoying the outdoors. And for me to join a larger company, a Fortune 200 company, in their marketing and technical writing department, I thought that my ideas would be heard and we could test things a lot quicker, make decisions and, and kind of change direction as we needed to. Uh, the biggest, I'll say, epiphany that I had was I had an idea for a marketing campaign, pitched it to my boss. He approved it. My boss's boss approved it. And the third boss in line said no. And I thought that was very inefficient. So we got and to I, two people and two people thought it was a good idea, but because it was that third person, it, it just shut it down. Exactly. And so for me to have that realization of if I have these ideas, how quickly and efficiently can they be implemented? Can they be implemented at all? And if you have to go up the line through that many yeses, I felt like it was uh, too slow moving of an environment for me. So I looked into moving abroad and going back to playing poker. And I realized Ireland won your holiday visa. I, you know, I'd never been before, but my dad's side of the family is Irish. And I applied, got approved and said, okay, I'm selling and giving away everything I had except for what fits into a backpack. And I'm going there for a year. So while I ended up in Dublin, I played primarily online, but then I traveled the European poker tour stops as well. And during my time in Ireland, it was actually kind of my, my first taste of startups, so to speak. I met a lot of poker players turned angel investors, and they were telling me that running a technology company or building it from the ground up was more fast-paced than playing 40 tables of online poker at once. At the time, I had no business ideas whatsoever, uh, but that really stuck out to me, and I was intrigued enough to where when I got back to Iowa in 2014, I started asking around the Ames area if any small startups were hiring. I had no idea what industries I was interested in, uh, and that's kind of where the, the opportunity and the genesis of Kinosol comes in. Uh, while asking around on campus if any you know, startups were hiring, anyone had just started a company. I met a group of individuals who were in the Global Resource Systems Program at Iowa State who were working on a business plan competition called Thought for Food Challenge. That year was sponsored by Syngenta and Microsoft. And the idea and the entire focus of it was how do we improve food security? for a growing population. And ultimately, we focused on uh, food waste and food loss in developing regions and started to build prototypes of solar food dehydrators and got that into primarily Eastern Africa for user testing. And from there, I got into more and more locations, more and more feedback, I established a manufacturing partner, and then launched that product into about 40 countries worldwide uh, before I left the day-to-day -day operations a couple of years ago from Kinosol. Awesome. Very cool. So I guess that's a really good segue into, into where you're at now um, with Nebulum. You're still in the food space. You're still in the sustainability space. I might make those comparisons. What, what parallels are there between your first uh, Kinosol adventure uh, and then moving forward into where you're at now? And then maybe what are some differences too? Yeah. So with Kinosol, it was looking at everything on a global scale. So food waste in developing regions often happen because of post-harvest techniques. So you're a subsistence farmer living off your land, and the food you're growing 
if you don't harvest it properly or you don't have a proper place to store it, then a lot of it just wastes while on the vine or actually on the tree, right? And for us to focus in developing regions, I was very excited, but then I started thinking about how could we improve the food supply chain and those processes in our own backyard, so starting locally. And that's where the genesis of Nebulum is a college friend, Danan Poole, reached out to me and said, I think indoor farming should exist everywhere. But how most of the industry looks at indoor farming, I think, is backwards. So he pitched me on the idea of what would become our technology and our growing equipment and said, you know, we should partner up, co-found this company together, which at the time it was called Aerolands. Uh, and then we switched to Nebulum a couple years later. And with Nebulum, one, we've had a lot of pivots. We originally set out to become the John Deere for indoor farming. So we wanted to sell our growing equipment and license the software that runs the equipment to new and expanding indoor farms. When COVID hit earlier this year, that was our, our business model. And COVID forced us to change and find a place or find a home for all the food we were growing from our model farm. And that's when we pivoted from wholesaling to local area grocers and restaurants to a direct-to-consumer or a farm-to-door subscription service. That's taken off enough to where now we have a consumer brand and we have a little over 50 subscribers in the area. And that feedback has really helped us improve each and every process from the moment we're growing plants in our indoor farm here in the Iowa State University Research Park to the moment it's uh, landing on someone's doorstep in central Iowa. A couple of big differences uh, outside of the, the focus areas between Kinosol and Nebulum. Uh, Kinosol, we were able to bootstrap and we won a handful of business plan competitions. And then we actually started charging for our prototypes that we sold early on. So we were able to bootstrap, get to break even without outside capital. Whereas in with Nebulum, you have hardware, software, and living organisms. So it's a little bit more capital intensive. So we've raised a couple of rounds. We're in the middle of raising our third round of investment right now. You know, I, I noticed that you've, you've really been making an effort to uh, kind of share your wisdom and share some of the things that you uh, learned early on or maybe have struggled with. Um, what are some of those things that, uh, you know, it, it's really helpful to go through the process once, and you've done it twice already uh, in starting a company. And, you know, what are, what are some of those things that stick out that, you know, a couple of tidbits that maybe if somebody's looking at starting a business, whether that's in the food space or not, what are some of those things that you want to tell uh, maybe early entrepreneurs or young entrepreneurs right away? Oh, I could go, go on for a couple hours with this. Uh, I'll start with uh, something that helped me from my poker career uh, to prepare for a startup career. Really starts with understanding sample size and expected value of something. So, in my poker career as a, as a tournament professional player, the tournaments that I played every month, I would have 20 to 25 days of losing money. But those five or six days in the month where I made money, that's where you, you banked on you know, everything coming in and getting you to a good return on investment. So understanding that most days are going to be challenging, and in my case, I was losing money most days, you have to remain level-headed. Uh, that's why I, I try to be a practicing stoic uh, but when it comes to starting a company, especially a company that you need to go out and raise capital with, you have to just understand that it's all about a sample size. So if you're going to start a company and you have, let's say, a product or service idea, 
you need to get in front of the proper number of potential users or customers. Uh, from my side, it always starts with customer discovery. And you test your assumptions around the problem you're actually solving or the gain you're actually creating for them. And then taking it a step further, if you're going out to raise capital, you know, a couple of, of good statistics to keep in the back of your mind is for every 100-ish investors you'll talk to, you may be able to collect one check. Really? And when you're starting a company, an, another statistic around it is, you know, nine times out of 10, uh, the company is going to fail. The way I approach that, that helps me get through uh, all of the downtimes, right, is the fact that if you, if you have one successful company in every 10 attempts, that means in order to become successful, you just need to start 10 companies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but staying, staying level-headed throughout that process and understanding that it is just all a process uh, really helps. Uh, my suggestion is to find a co-founder that balances you out. So for instance, I'm the co-founder and CEO, I'm the non-technical co-founder whereas in Danon is the co-founder and chief technology officer. So we're kind of a, a yin and yang for our strengths. We keep each other balanced. I think that's really important. Uh, a couple other thoughts that I have uh, around starting a company. Uh, whatever you think it's going to cost and the time you think it's going to take, you should double them to, to start <laughs> with. Uh, we've never hit a, you know, a target timeline for uh, when we think we're going to launch a new product or uh, for something and its cost, we've never come in under, under that budget in the early days. Uh, that's something that you just kind of have to learn by fire at times. Uh, that's really important too. And then having a set of mentors to help keep you accountable is very important. It doesn't have to be you know, an official board of directors or a board of advisors, just someone who has been there and done that before you, where maybe once a month you can have a check-in call with them, tell them about what's not working before you tell them what's working so they can really help. And, and something with my writing and, and me seeing the, the Iowa startup community grow so quickly over the last six years since moving back to Iowa and jumping into startups is something that uh, I see a lot of times people are happy to share what's working and put out the press releases of announcing big funding rounds or new, new product launches. Uh, but in my opinion, we have a service to provide to new and upcoming founders who are maybe you know, just two or three years behind us in the journey. And a lot of that starts with talking and sharing about what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why at Nebulum we're moving to, uh, it's called Building in Public. And we're really excited to actually just start sharing some of our metrics and more blog posts about what we've done wrong. And our hope is that we save uh, either you know a current founder a couple years behind us or, or future potential founders uh, heartache and and capital uh, and some some time hopefully as well cool that's awesome it's awesome that you're doing that um so sticking on the the nebulum topic i gotta ask i think i've always been curious where did where did the name come from what is is there a story what's the what's the story behind that yeah i so originally with Aerolands. We were pretty excited. That was Danon's name for the company, Aero, because we use aeroponics instead of hydroponics. Uh, we had a really nice logo created, and that was our social media for the first about year and a half. And we started realizing all the Google searches uh, directed Aeroland searches to Aero Farms, a huge up-and-coming indoor farm on the East Coast. So we said, okay, let's think of an original name, and then hopefully be able to get the domain name, uh, which there's pros and cons to having a you know an original name. Sure. Uh, with Nebulum, it starts with nebula, so a star in a gaseous state or something that you nebulize, turn into a really fine mist. Mm -hmm. So that had the aeroponics theme. 
And then we were looking around alternative words and other languages that meant sustainable. And we came across Nulam uh, that could be referenced as sustainable. Smash them together, you get Nebulum, and then you get Nebulum.com. Uh, that being said, as we've pivoted from a B2B company focused on the technology side, from there to now where we are a direct consumer, uh, a company focused on the, the food, right? Uh, that's why recently we picked up eatlettuce.com. Uh, that's a lot easier to try to remember mm -hmm. uh, than to try to remember Nebulum and how to spell it for our consumers and our subscribers. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. And like I said, we'll put all those links uh, in, in the notes so people are able to find find you guys. And uh, so I, I know early you, earlier you mentioned the timeline with new products or uh, new services and anything that requires a, a period of time. It always seems like it takes longer. On, on that topic, what are some new products that uh, maybe you can give us a, a hint at or uh, what, what are some things that might be coming down the pipeline that you could share with us? Yeah, good question. So at Nebulum, we, we pride ourselves on the idea of creating access to reliable and local food year round. And in order for us to do that, we need to prove out our technology at commercial scale here at our own indoor farm in the Iowa State University Research Park. If we're successful at that, we will be looking to franchise out Nebulum Farms. So ideally, someone comes to us, they see value in having a local neighborhood farm that can grow produce year round and provide that food to their community. So in our pipeline, we're looking at 2021 of completing our own indoor farm here in the research park then expanding out into our first two franchisee locations, uh, which will likely be in Iowa. Uh, but then our larger scope is to expand nationally from there. As far as products, uh, so we started with lettuce because of the, the volume and ours is a red butterhead lettuce, and then rolled out microgreen varieties, so broccoli sprouts, microradish, pea shoots, among a few of ours. And we are trialing tomatoes right now. So those launched to subscribers uh, at the end of March. So we'll be rolling out tomatoes, uh, cherry tomatoes and larger heirloom tomatoes. From there, we're looking at crops such as cucumbers and peppers. And we're also very intrigued by strawberries and strawberry production moving uh, into indoors. Awesome, very cool. So um, I am also a, uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, when, I, when I picture your indoor farming, I, I don't really know what to expect. I've seen pictures. I've seen pictures online. But maybe could you just give uh, a very high-level explanation of how your indoor farming works and how it's, how, it's, how it's more beneficial than just traditional outdoor farming? Yeah, I'll start with, you know, if we're successful, that means we will have been able to remove seasonality from existence. Mm -hmm. And to us, that's, that's very important because that means everyone everywhere can have access to that reliable local food year-round. When you think indoor farm here in Iowa, a lot of times a greenhouse or a hoop house comes to mind, yeah, right? Definitely. Uh, still sometimes using soil. Mm -hmm. With our indoor farm, it's a fully controlled environment, so all artificial lighting. We use no soil whatsoever. And with aeroponics, we essentially suspend our plants uh, into a wall, and their roots are in what we call a root chamber. And then we pressurize water and nutrients into a really fine mist, and we hit the roots directly with that mist. What kind of nutrients? Fertilizers? What, what is that? What yes. Is that like? so, so, yep, liquid fertilizers. We're not trying to reinvent the, the wheel and at this time make you know, our plants more nutritious. Uh, but it's essentially everything that the plant needs to keep it happy so we can harvest it and get it to somebody's door. 
from our perspective too, with aeroponics, we, we save a lot on the inputs such as water and nutrients. Uh, and then additionally, we have extra or faster growth rates. So if you're growing, let's say a head of lettuce hydroponically, from the moment you place into a hydroponic piece of growing equipment uh, to when it's harvested, it's about four weeks. So 12 really? harvest cycles a year. Whereas with aeroponics for us, it's about three weeks. So we go from 12 harvest cycles a year up to 17 harvest cycles a year. So a lot more food produced per square foot. Definitely. And another focus point of us for an indoor farm is how can we produce as much food per square foot and how can we reduce labor by as much as possible per square foot? So when you walk into our indoor farm here in the research park, you'll see a lot of uh, what I consider or call a plant wall. And there's lettuce growing from both sides of that plant wall. So everything you see on one side is mirrored on the other. You can think of it as a dry cleaning rack for your plants. And when we install these plant walls, we will be able to eliminate all aisle space. And that allows for just more food production per square foot. Mm -hmm. And then our walls are mobilized. So whenever a section of the wall is ready to be harvested, you pull it off of one end, harvest, clean the, the front and the back of the panels, new seedlings go in. It gets rotated around the other side, so that's where we think of it as a dry cleaning rack, but for your plants. Interesting. So is that very labor intensive? I mean, do it, it sounds like uh, the harvesting process, at least when you get to that point, would, would take you know all hands on deck. What's that like? Is, do you have a lot of employees? Do you have uh, people that are you know constantly watching these plants 24 hours a day? What's that, what's that like? Yeah, good questions. So for us, we have the software focus as the on-site horticulturalist. So our manual labor and our manual processes at the farm are seeding, transplanting, and harvesting. Okay. So we foresee at a 1,000 square foot indoor farm where we're producing about 15,000 pounds of lettuce each year, you need one full-time production team member wow. to handle. We're very focused on the automation. Awesome, very cool. How does that compare to, I mean, do you have any like statistics that measure how much more productive your, your farming is than just you know any kind of like specific numbers? Yeah, uh, really high level numbers. When you think of an indoor farm that maybe utilizes hydroponics, maybe it's in a greenhouse, uh, if they're growing lettuce year round, one, because of the, the fewer harvest cycles, and two, because of the horizontal placement of their equipment, sure. you know, best case scenario, you're getting uh, eight-ish pounds of lettuce per square foot each year. Mm -hmm. So we're getting almost double that at 15. Oh. Uh, as far as labor goes, we like to focus on reducing labor by two-thirds and ultimately to fully automate uh, where we see a nebulous farm in the future, you walk in and there's, there's just no one there. Mm -hmm. uh, but for us, it's all about improving the, the outputs per square foot, so that production per square foot. So if we can double that and then reduce the labor per square foot by two thirds, that's a really good baseline for us to focus on. Interesting, very cool. So to kind of segue into uh, your space here at the research park and your relationship with the university, uh, kind of getting your start there with your first venture uh, through that university project. What are some ways that you've seen the university or the research park uh, really, really push for innovation? And what are some things that have been successful? And maybe what are some things that haven't been as successful? So one, I'm really proud to be able to build technology companies here in Ames. I see us as playing to Ames and Iowa's strengths, focusing on food tech and ag tech. Having Iowa State University in the backyard for recruiting has been amazing for us. When I think of the community, and especially the roles the research park plays, it comes down to a rising tide raises all ships. 
And whether it's hosting for events like One Million Cups uh, downstairs here in the building or having the, the hackathons over the weekends, it seems like everyone is trying to achieve the same mission of providing a good starting ground for launching a company. And that's so important. Another observation I've had is over the last couple of years, the amount of companies being started, in, in my opinion, from what I've seen, have almost doubled. And that's awesome. And in order to, to continue to foster this as, as a great startup community and a place where people can launch companies, I think we need to focus on how do we get a, let's say, a student coming in as an undergrad at Iowa State who has a business idea and takes that idea to maybe a local pitch competition, maybe builds a prototype, gets a couple of beta users, uh, gets a couple of first customers. How do we encourage them to stay here and build their company here? So every semester that starts, I try to get in to speak to as many classes as possible on campus to share a little bit about what we're doing, but how Ames has really helped us when it comes to building a company and to show them that this is a good place to build a company. One, capital goes a lot further than the coast, right? Uh, two, well, some people call it Iowa nice. I see it as a, as a benefit when everyone has a give first mentality and everyone is just very open to communicating and helping each other. And, and you don't have that everywhere. Uh, so that's really important for us to continue to keep that here and always be looking for ways to improve it. Cool. Awesome. So Clayton, we've, uh, you know, on previous podcasts, we've, we've asked our guests, you know, the word innovation, what this podcast is named after is, is kind of ambiguous. It, it, it means a lot of different things. Uh, it can have a lot of different definitions to different people. So what's the real story behind it? So for me, the definition of innovation is improving society. And it doesn't have to be a huge technological advancement. But when I think of innovation, you, know, you can go down the product route, you can go down the service route. But from its simplest form, it's just improving a process to make somebody's day or life better. And I've noticed you know, there's a lot of buzzwords popping up, especially, especially on LinkedIn nowadays. Uh, and that reminds me of when you're working on something, how do you talk about it publicly? And I think one of the best first steps you can have is thinking of a simple one-liner. And as an example, Nebulum's one-liner has evolved and changed dozens and dozens of times. And at one point, we were caught up in all of the buzzwords. We even have a pop-up banner that says it. Uh, it says, Nebulum uh, grows using automated high-pressure aeroponics and artificial intelligence. So most people, when you say that to them, what does that mean? And we thankfully had some good mentors and good feedback of needing to change that. And that evolved into uh, you know, John, the John Deere for indoor farming with our old business model. And now, since we want to help franchise out indoor farms, we're focused on we want to empower anyone anywhere to become an indoor farmer. And I think that's really important when you think back to innovation and its roots of what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Because the clearer you can make that message, the more people who can help you. And that's, that's another big benefit of having a, a strong startup community. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I know you can't be working all of your hours uh, away. What, what are some things that you like to do uh, in your free time? What are some of your, what are some of your hobbies? So it starts with, uh, with boxing 
and ultra running. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting with boxing. I didn't start boxing until I moved to Denver. So I was in my mid twenties and joined a, a pretty tough gym. Uh, learned a lot in a short amount of time. I uh, kept up with boxing while in Ireland. And then when I moved back to Iowa, I jumped in and joined the Iowa State University Boxing Club. I was too old to compete and I naturally fell into a coaching rhythm. So I've coached at Iowa State Boxing since the end of 2016. And boxing is interesting to me because it forces you to focus on the moment. If you don't, the result is you're physically getting hurt. So that's really good to, to not get caught up in the past or the future and just to focus on the moment. Of course, it keeps you in good shape too. Whereas in ultra running, uh, I never started running until I turned 30, essentially, and I'd never done more than a 10K. And uh, I did my first marathon in July of 2018, I believe. And I did not enjoy running on the concrete and the pavement. So I started looking for trail races. And then I discovered there's this thing called ultra trail running. And on the low end, you're running a 50K, so about 31 miles. On the high end, some of the races, you run 200 plus miles in the desert over three Goodness. or four days. So for me, I was very intrigued. And I see both boxing and longer distance running as uh, a way to a way to, to put aside whatever is going on in the day and find some, some way or somewhere to relax with doing it. It may not make sense when I say relax with boxing and, and ultra running, but, uh, but it is in some ways relaxing for me. Yeah, for sure. What is, what's the farthest you've ever run? How many miles con consecutive miles have you run? So the only level I'm at for ultras right now are the 50Ks, but I did run a 50K that ended up being closer to 34 miles. They had to reroute the course because of some flooding the day before. <laughs> uh, and then this year, I was supposed to do eight 50Ks, and COVID slowed down some of them, mm -hmm. but still ended up with about a half dozen. And then in 2021, I'm looking to transition from 50Ks into 50 milers and 100Ks, because in 2022, I want to run my first 100-miler. That's a lot of miles. <laughs> that it is. A lot of, lot of time out there on the trails to think about, uh, you know, solutions to problems. Is that, is that what it is? More of a, what do you, what do you listen to while you're running? Do you listen to music? Do you listen to podcasts or do you, are you just thinking? So if I'm running on a treadmill, I'm usually listening, listening to podcasts. So mm -hmm. bad weather, uh, you know, icy conditions out, I'm running on the treadmill. If I'm out running on the trails, I try not to listen to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's another form of relaxation for me. If I can just you know, hear that there's no one around. I'm just running on the trails. Uh, the twigs and branches uh, snapping are relaxing to me. Sometimes I listen to long form podcasts or audible books. Uh, and then other times I feel like just music. Mm -hmm. yep. Very cool. What are some of your favorite places to run in Ames? Where should I go check out? Oh, okay. This is a, a hidden gym, but McFarland Park. Okay. You can run, they have miles and miles of trails around the park. But you can also run from McFarland Park up to Story City on the equestrian trails. So there's been times where I've done a 15-mile loop up and back and never run across another person. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. Very cool. So to uh, kind of wrap up, I've got a, a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. Um, this is something we like to do with, with all of our guests. But in regards to your company, Nebulum, uh, we're going to ask you uh, a couple of questions. Where are you going to be in 
a certain time frame. So I'm going to give you some time frames and just the first thing that comes to mind, uh, the first thing that pops into your head, spit it out. Let us know what's going to happen with Nebulum in these next X amount of days, X amount of years. Uh, I'll give you a couple of dates and, and you'll go from there. So the first date I'm going to give you is two months. Where's Nebulum going to be? What, what's going to change in the next two months? So two months from now, we will be harvesting over 100 pounds of lettuce every week. How about in two years? Where's Nebulum going to be in two years? Two years, we will have a handful of franchised Nebulum farms here in Iowa and throughout the Midwest. And what about five years? Nebulum farms in every state. Every state. All every 50, state. huh? All 50. Amazing. Looking forward to it. Clayton, uh, thank you for being a guest on the Innovators Podcast today. Uh, we appreciate your wisdom and insight and uh, giving us a chunk of your schedule. Uh, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt.